I would invite you to turn in your copy of the scriptural text, either the one you brought with you to the church building this morning or the one that's in the pew rack in front of you, and turn to the passage that Pastor Ben read a few moments ago from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, We're in the midst, uh, the beginning of a study of of this epistle of Paul's, 1 Corinthians. And um, uh, so far in three messages, uh, we're coming up to chapter 2, verses 6 through 16 today. At this pace, I'm not sure we'll be done by Christmas, but we'll not worry about that. Let me try to sum up uh, what we have seen thus far in Paul's letter and try to put it, uh, at least today's text, in relation to what we've seen uh, so far. In chapter 1 and verse 2, Paul has addressed the church, the believers in Corinth, and he addresses them and reminds them of their identity in Christ as those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. And uh, in effect, he was just wanting them to not lose uh, grip on the fact of who they are in Christ, that they are hagios, that they are holy, they are sanctified ones, that positionally, because of their conversion and that change that the quartet just sang about, that positionally they are a holy people, they are saints, uh, as it were. And that is not only true of these believers in Corinth, but it's true of all you who have put your faith, uh, your saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is your identity identity in Jesus. You are a saint. Now, it's interesting to me that, that Paul uh, addresses them as saints, as sanctified ones, as called to this identity, because he knows that their lives are pretty messed up. We've called this series Get Real and talking about authentic spiritual living. And, and uh, boy, you see real life in the life of these Corinthians, and we'll see even more of it as we plow through this uh, particular p- epistle. But Paul knows that there are a lot, of their th- a lot of things in their life, a lot of junk, a lot of uh, spiritual baggage that they're carrying. He knows that as he addresses these as uh, uh, called ones, that there are folks in the church who are just nominal at best, and they're mixed in with the true believers in this church at Corinth. But he he chooses to give them the benefit of the doubt. He speaks in a charitable way to the whole church as those who have been called. And then in verse 8 of chapter 1, Paul says that one of the marks of these called saints is that they shall be sustained to the end. That is, that they will persevere in the walk of faith, not because of them, but because the God we serve is faithful. And as He calls us, He's faithful to cause us to persevere to the very end. Look at what He says in verse 8. He, God, will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless. Think of that. You will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, For God who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What is the character quality he, he exalts and lifts up? This God is faithful. Boy, I tell you what, that's an encouraging word. I take it as an encouraging word. I hope you do this morning. It, you know, there are times in this life when we struggle 
Sometimes we go through those dry seasons of the soul. There are times when you falter in your faith and, and you, you seem to be flagging. You, you take two steps forward and three steps back. Uh, but the, the word, this hopeful word from the apostle is that if he has called you and saved you, praise God, he will enable you and he will keep you strong to the finish. Not like Popeye because you ate your spinach, but he'll keep you strong to the end. And He'll cause you to persevere. So on the day of the Lord, you shall be blameless. Praise the Lord. So Paul begins on this very hopeful note. The one who's called you into fellowship with His Son will confirm you in that relationship and will keep you to the end. Does that excite you? I can't really tell. Then last week we saw in in, uh, verses 10 through 17 of chapter 1 that there were growing factions and divisions in the church. Aren't we familiar with that? And there were people lining up behind their favorite teacher and they were getting puffed up with carnal pride. And in verse 12, as we saw last week, there were groups of people who were saying, hey, I follow Paul. And others were saying, I follow Apollos. And still others were saying, I follow Cephas. They'd fallen prey to the temptation of, to, of exalting the vessels of God choosing, the, the men that God had choose, chosen to use as His instruments. Instead of fixing their, their gaze on the Lord of glory, they had idealized, they had idolized, They had, I'm not sure this word is in the English language, but we're going to coin it today. They had pedestalized these preachers. They'd gotten their eyes off of Jesus and they'd gotten their eyes on the servants and were exalting the vessels and and were kind of judging one another in all of these factions and divisions in the church. And they were demonstrating carnal pride in the process. So virtually everything that Paul says in the rest of the first four chapters of this epistle are aimed to overcome this carnal pride that seems to be characterized in their life together. This tendency to boast in the works of men. And what Paul wants to do is to get their attention back on the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, saints, don't we need that today in the church? To get the personalities out of it. To get the skills and the gifts. Oh, it's wonderful how God has gifted certain ones and blessed certain ones with tremendous gifts. But it's, it's, not, it's not the person who is the recipient of the gift, but the giver of the gift who should be exalted. The Lord Jesus Himself. And that's Paul's desire, is to get the attention of the church back on the cross of Jesus. And he exhorts them to refrain from boasting in that which is exalted among men. And instead, in verse 31, we find him saying, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And that's the goal of these opening salvos of Paul in these early chapters of this epistle. But he's not done. Because in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he picks up the very same theme again, and he makes the cross the basis for his ministry. Look at what he says in verse 2. For I resolved to know nothing, absolutely nothing, while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And then down in verse 4 of chapter 2, he says, For my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, 
but my preaching and my message was was accompanied by a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. It is, to me, a sad state of affairs when in the church today that much of the preaching that goes on behind the pulpits of America is nothing more than empty speech and has no spiritual power thereof. Paul says, I didn't come into your midst and try to demonstrate oratorical prowess because that would have led to the praise and adulation of men and and it would have emptied the power of the cross had I done that. Instead, he tells the Corinthians, he reminds them that when he came to minister to them, he came in fear and trembling. Look at what he says in verse 3 of chapter 2. He says, I came to you, look at the words he uses, I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Weakness, fear, and much trembling. Paul was describing an inward quaking of the soul that he was experiencing as he faced the daunting challenge of declaring faithfully the Word of God and the message of the cross to the Corinthians. And any preacher that's worth their salt knows that trembling, that quaking of the soul, when you stand behind the sacred desk, you understand the awesome responsibility that God has placed on your shoulders as you deliver the gospel of Christ and rightly divide the Word of God. Sometimes when I stand out there in that hallway waiting to come in to begin the services, I literally am trembling inside because of the awesome responsibility that God has chosen a weak and a foolish vessel like me to declare this mystery of the gospel. And there's an understanding in my heart that unless I receive what the old-timers used to call holy unction, ever heard that phrase? Unless I get holy unction from the Holy Spirit, that is the divine enablement of God's Spirit, that when I stand here and preach, if I don't have the power of the Spirit, all I'm doing is just delivering a speech, a piece of oratory. It will fall on deaf ears unless the Spirit of God has already begun to move and bring that message to each of our hearts. And these Corinthians were boasting in the works of men, in the wisdom of men. They were puffed up with carnal pride. They had failed to learn that the cross is not just a past place of redemption and forgiveness, but listen to me, that the cross is a present place of execution. The cross is a place where you and I must day daily die daily. Yeah, you can day daily if you want to. You must die daily to self. Self has to go. We must decrease so that He might increase. Carnal flesh needs to be crucified on the cross of Christ. All that carnal pride, all that that puffing up, that boasting over our abilities, our strengths, our talents... That's got to go. It is absolute junk. It is rubbish. 
It's got to go. And we must die to self at the cross of Jesus. And Paul wants to remind this church that the gospel that he has preached in their midst and the one that he continues to declare through his writing is not a gospel of his own making, his own creation, but this gospel that he faithfully is declaring is one that was given to him by God himself. And that's where we pick up today in verses 6 and following. Now, in this passage, and even in some of the verses that precede verse 6, over and again, Paul has been contrasting two ideas, the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. He contrasts the two concepts, the wisdom of God with the wisdom of this world. And he distinguishes the wisdom that he is teaching from the wisdom of this age. That's the... the um, phrase he uses in verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but this message is not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. You see, among the, the believers at Corinth, there was a great problem. They had given in to the sophist philosophers who were being uh, proclaimed and adulated and followed. And Paul says, that philosophy, uh, it, it, it is just trash. Put it away. If the rulers of this world had understood the wisdom of God, they would not have crucified Christ if they'd understood what they were doing. He says, we speak a, a wisdom that's not of this age. It's not a human wisdom. That's the word he uses in verse 13. But the wisdom that he imparts, according to verse 7, is the wisdom of God. These people had, had heard the message of the gospel. And they had believed in the good news of the gospel. But apparently what was happening is that they, they had departed amidst a search for those elusive, deeper truths. And Paul was, was calling them back to their point of departure. You see, the real Corinthian problem here was this. That they were searching for the Corinthians were searching for something that they already possessed. Their problem is, is not some hidden truth that is yet undiscovered. Their problem is that they have not come to a full realization that the truth of God, the wisdom of God, is already theirs in Christ Jesus. There is a principle here that I think is very vital for us to understand. There are a lot of well-meaning people running around today who are trying to find some sort of what they will call a second blessing. You need to know that if you have already come to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ, then already you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. You have it all. Everything that belongs to Jesus Christ is your present possession. You don't have to wait for it. You don't have to, to, to go seeking it as a second blessing. You already have it. You presently possess it in Jesus Christ. The problem is that these blessings of God that, that are ours in Christ Jesus 
are not visible to the naked eye. They cannot be measured in a test tube or empirically observed. They are, as Paul says here and contends in this passage, they are hidden from the naked eye. In verse 7, Paul says that this wisdom, this hidden wisdom, has to do with what God destined for our glory before time began. Uh, hold your place in 1 Corinthians for a moment and turn over to the, the uh, letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians. And look at verse 3 of chapter 1. Same thought here. Same thing that he's talking to the Corinthians about. He's speaking to the Ephesians. Chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 3. Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, look at what he says, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with what? Every spiritual blessing in whom? In Christ. It's already yours. Now look, for He chose us in Him, who's Him? Christ, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. That's exactly what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. He said, God has destined you for glory before time began, before the foundations of the world were set in place. Think of it. You were on God's mind and heart. Way back then. He had a plan and a purpose that would in time be unfolded. He destined you for this glory before time began. What an amazing thing. I can tell you're equally excited by that thought as well. That I was on God's mind. What an amazing thing. And in verse 9, Paul goes on about these spiritual blessings that are ours already in Christ. And, and he quotes Isaiah 64, verse 4, and he says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. You know, I used to think that that, that passage was talking about the blessings that you and I, that, uh, that will someday be ours when we get to heaven. I was absolutely wrong in that understanding when I was an immature Christian. Paul is not talking about heaven there. He is talking not about the sweet by and by. He's talking about the nasty here and now. He's talking about what is ours already in Christ Jesus. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. Do you love the Lord today? If you love the Lord, you can't imagine what He has for you. I, I think, though there will be no regrets in heaven, I think that one of the regrettable things that many of us will come to have an understanding of is that in heaven we will realize how much in this life, in this pilgrim journey, how much of the blessing and the abundance of God that we missed out on because we were not filled with faith. Uh, in our Gospel reading today, Ben read, Jesus' words said, I have come, what? That you may have life and that life to the full. God wants you to have an abundant life, a full life. He wants you to experience these spiritual blessings. What keeps us from experiencing those blessings? It is our own small faith and our lack of obedience to Christ. He has a storehouse 
a wealth of blessings that are in Christ Jesus and everything that belongs to Christ is yours. Not in the sweet by and by, but here and now. Just think how that would change the operation and the fabric of your day if you would begin to understand that spiritual truth. God has prepared some wonderful blessings for us and we possess those blessings right now. You don't have to wait until you are in heaven to become a child of God. You've already been adopted into the family of God. And the benefits of being God's child are yours right now. You are our co-heir with Jesus Christ. Moreover, eternal life is a present possession. Eternal life is a present possession of those who believe in Christ. You have a righteous standing before God right now. Because of you, absolutely not. Because of Christ Jesus. And that is why Paul wants to get the Corinthians' eyes back on the cross and upon Jesus. And that these things are present possessions. Now, the world out there can't comprehend those blessings, doesn't understand them. Why? Because the human eye can't see them. No ear has heard them. Man's rational uh, 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 capacity uh, cannot understand it. It has not been revealed to man's rationality. They are not visible. They, they cannot be seen. They cannot be tasted with the tongue. They can only be known as God has revealed them to us. God has to reveal these spiritual blessings to us. In other words, no one could ever find it out by mere human brain power. It comes from God and it must be revealed by God's Spirit. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 10. God has revealed this. God has revealed this truth to you. How? By His Spirit. This wisdom of God is not learned out of a textbook or a classroom. This wisdom of God is not discoverable to the human natural mind. Even Peter, when he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, heard Jesus say to him, Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven revealed that to you. You see, the only way we can see and understand this hidden truth that is in God's Word is if the Spirit of God graciously and mercifully reveals it to us and gives us understanding. So there's no reason, no basis for boasting in our human intellect or, or power. Because this is a gift from God. I mean, you can read all the scholarly works, works of exposition and all the rest, and all of that has, has been given as a gift by God's Spirit to those men and women who've written those commentaries. Without the Spirit revealing those truths to them, there's no way that they would understand it. It's a gift. Paul makes that point so clearly in verse 7 of chapter 4 when he says, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? You see, Paul says there is a Christian wisdom, this wisdom of God that is given as a gift of God, a free gift of His Spirit in which it is revealed to us. And so there's no basis for boasting as though your superior smartness figured it out. You can't. This Christian wisdom must be revealed by God's Spirit. 
There's a famous story that comes from the Second Great Awakening that involves two uh, men of letters, William Wilberforce and William Pitt. Perhaps you know uh, a part of the story of Wilberforce uh, because you've seen the movie Amazing Grace. And so you know a little bit of his pedigree. You know that he was a great man of that day, a member of British Parliament who was instrumental in the abolition of slavery and the slave trade in the British Empire. William Pitt, Wilberforce's friend, who was younger than Wilberforce, was once the Prime Minister of Great Britain. Wilberforce had become, by the grace of God, had become a devout follower of Jesus Christ. However, William Pitt was not a Christ follower. He was only a Christian in a nominal sense, uh, which was often the case among the British higher classes in those days. Apparently, William Wilberforce was desperately concerned over his friend, William Pitt, over his friend's spiritual state, that he was not saved, that he was not redeemed. And so, as a good friend should do, uh, Wilberforce sought any opportunity that he could to speak to William Pitt about the truths, the spiritual truths and realities of Jesus Christ and explain to him uh, the plan of salvation. Uh, Wilberforce prevailed on Pitt one day and invited him to uh, a great evangelical service that was being held in, in England at the time. And the preacher was a man by the name of Richard Cecil. You might not be familiar with his name, but he was a great evangelical preacher of the time. And so Wilberforce thought that this would be a great opportunity to invite his friend William Pitt to that service and, and uh, have him hear uh, this evangelical preacher uh, talk about the claims of Jesus Christ. And so the two men, Wilberforce and Pitt, went to this great service. And according to Wilberforce's diaries, uh, Richard Cecil was at his very best uh, that uh, particular day. The holy unction of the Spirit was on him. The anointing of the Spirit was on him. And Cecil was preaching with great power. And uh, uh, Wilberforce records and he says, it, it was so wonderful as he talked about the riches uh, that are ours in Christ Jesus. I wanted to give my heart back to the Lord all over again. And all through the meeting, as Cecil is preaching, he couldn't help but wonder how his friend William Pitt was responding to these great spiritual realities and truth. But he didn't have to wait very long to find out, because as the two men were walking out of the building, uh, William Pitt turned to his friend and he said, Wilberforce, I need to tell you I haven't the slightest idea what that man was talking about. Not the slightest idea. And of course he didn't. He couldn't grasp those truths. It made no sense to him. What was light and life to William Wilberforce was nothing but spiritual gobbledygook to William Pitt. And that's the point that Paul is making here. That's the fact of life that Paul is describing. It is the fact that explains why in the Bible... No one is ever surprised by unbelief. Jesus never was. Paul never was. Unbelief, friends, unbelief is our natural state. And it will never change. Our unbelief will never change 
until the Holy Spirit, by His mercy and grace, will soften our heart and begin to peel the scales off of our eyes and begin to unstop our ears. We will never understand the immensity of God's grace until the Spirit of God begins to stir His stick in our heart and rain conviction on our life. You can't win anyone to the Lord. You can point them to Christ. You can witness to them. You can bear testimony to what God has graciously done in your life. But it must be the Spirit of God who stirs and works and brings conviction into the life. And how does the Spirit work? It's not an inward voice that you hear in your head. If, if, you, if you're hearing voices, you've got another problem. It's not a voice you hear in your head. It's not uh, uh, the creation in the soul of some unreasonable conviction for some sudden impulse to take a leap in the dark. Rather, the Spirit's activity is revealed to us through His Word. And as the Word is made known, as the Word is preached, as the Word is read, the Spirit of God will begin to reveal this hidden truth to the human heart. The natural man can't understand it. It's confusion. It's gobbledygook. But when the Spirit of God begins to feel away at the heart, all of a sudden these words start leaping off the page and that truth starts jumping out at you and you can hardly contain the glories of it. That's why every time you read the Scriptures, you should pause and ask God by His Holy Spirit to reveal, to illumine your, to your heart and mind this truth. If you, if you are not a spiritual woman or man, if you've not been redeemed, this, this is not going to make any sense to you. But if the Spirit graciously stirs and moves and begins to reveal this hidden truth to you, uh, there will be an anointing there will be a change that will take place in your life. This is how J.R. Packer, a great theologian of the last century, describes it and the work of the Spirit as an activity of inward illumination whereby a man's natural spiritual blindness. Remember, that's who we are in our nature. We are spiritually blind. Where a man's natural spiritual blindness is removed, the veil is taken from the eyes of the heart, and our pride and prejudice are broken down, and we are given both an understanding and a taste of spiritual realities. And that's what Paul is saying in our text today. When he talks about the Spirit of God revealing the gospel, revealing salvation, revealing Christ, it is by the Spirit that this happens. The Spirit is not only the author of Holy Scripture, but, but we, He is also the one who makes the Scripture come alive to us as the very Word of God in our individual hearts, minds, and consciences. And that is so vitally important for us to understand. This utter dependence of ours upon the illumination, the revelation of these truths by the Holy Spirit. This, then, I think explains why the world is so hostile to the Christian message. They don't get it. Their hearts are darkened and hardened. They're resistant to it. Should we be surprised? 
explains why it is so difficult, even impossible, to get unbelievers to really understand the Christian perspective and why they are so resistant to embracing it for themselves. Because their hearts are dark and blind. I once was blind. But now, because of the Spirit's revelation, but now I see. You may be scholarly, you may be intelligent, you may have all kinds of letters. T, D, D, T, H, D, P, H, D. You may have all kinds of sheepskins hanging on your wall. You may have impressed a lot of your teachers and professors. You may have fooled a lot of people on how intelligent you are. But you could have all kinds of worldly intelligence and you can be spiritually ignorant and you'll remain that way until the Spirit of God reveals these truths to you. And the, the cross is foolishness to the world. Absolute foolishness. And if the rulers of this world had understood it, as Paul claims, they would not have crucified Christ. Instead, they would have bowed on their knees and said, this is the Lord of glory. But they do not understand and they do not see the truth of things. And that's Paul's point. Martin Luther, the great reformer of Germany, says this, that without the Holy Spirit, man is like a pillar of salt. He's like Lot's wife. He's like a log and a stone. He's like a lifeless statue which uses neither eye nor mouth, neither sense nor heart, unless he is enlightened, converted, or regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Until the Spirit of God begins to work and stir in your life, you are like, says Luther, a pillar of salt, absolutely worthless. And that's Paul's argument. And that's who we were before the Spirit revealed this truth to us. How many of us would be able to stand and give testimony to the fact that before the Holy Spirit illuminated our hearts, that we had no inkling of the truth of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus? Before the Spirit of God revealed these spiritual truths to our hearts, we had no sympathy for the Christian message. We were ignorant about our own sinfulness, our own guilt, about Christ's sacrifice and about God's plan of salvation in Jesus. Before the Spirit of God stirred in my heart, the gospel of Christ was pure silliness. But then, oh, I'm so glad for that moment. Aren't you? When the Spirit of God began to... shine light on my sin-darkened heart, and, and I began to see what previously I had not seen, and suddenly things became clear, and I began to understand my guilt and my sin and my need for a Savior, and, and I, in repentance and humility, took on the Lord Jesus as my forgiver and the leader of my life, and from that time my life took a dramatic turn. It was like, as Wesley describes in his great hymn, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon. That's where we were before we came to Christ. I was in a dungeon in a prison house. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. The Spirit of God revealed His truth to me. My chains. Oh, when we get to that place in the song, I just want to shout and sing glory. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth. 
and follow thee. But it's the Spirit of God who has done that for you. No preacher can save you. No human philosophy can change you. You can follow Oprah's new digs and I don't know what she's all about. I don't even care to learn about it. Something about nature and being one with the flowers and all the rest, I don't know. But it won't transform you and make you into the image of Jesus. But when the Spirit reveals this truth to your heart, it's irresistible and you can't say no. That one should love you so much that He would give His life for you and me. And if the Spirit of God is dealing with your heart, if He's revealing these truths to you, I would say to you, my dear friends, that you have no more important business today than to respond to the opportunity of God's grace and mercy. And I would encourage you to not walk, but run to the cross of Jesus and experience His grace. Today is the day. Today is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. And if the Spirit of God is... is speaking to your heart and stirring the kettle of your life. Respond to that opportunity of grace. It might not come again. He's revealing this truth to your heart. Oh, you've got everybody else fooled. You, you do the church gig on Sunday morning. and Go with the family. But it's all spiritual confusion in your life. But possibly you're here this morning and and you would give witness to the fact that the Spirit has been at work in your life. And it's become ever clearer to you that, that you've bought into the wisdom of this world. That you, that you need to turn to God and you need to plead with God for, for Him to reveal to you the teaching of the Holy Spirit. So that you could understand this truth. And that the veil could be taken from your eyes and your heart. And I tell you, you can't find that truth. You cannot discover that true wisdom on your own. It has to be the Spirit of God doing it. And to those of you who are Christians in the room, I would say to you that like me, we should stand up and shout, Thank you, Lord. Thank you for that moment when you revealed to me, praise be to God be the glory, when you revealed to me my spiritual condition and when I saw the truth of your word. Glory to God. How appropriate then it is to read the words of Andrew Reed's hymn as our closing part of this message today. And this is my prayer daily. Holy Ghost with light divine, shine upon this heart of mine. Chase the shades of night away. Turn my darkness into day. Turn my darkness into day. Father, today we thank you for your word 
for this exhortation of Paul to the Corinthian believers and to us today. Consideration of these great truths. We thank You for Your Holy Spirit who takes this mystery which was once hidden from us, these spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus, and by this mysterious work is now revealed and continuing to reveal the wisdom of God to our hearts and our minds. We thank You that the Spirit of God dwells within us and we have an anointing from God who leads us into Your truth, a wisdom and truth that this world cannot offer. And I pray, O God, that You would help us to find our sufficiency in Your wisdom and not in the wisdom of men. Make us faithful followers of Christ. And we would pray that You would shine upon these poor hearts of ours and that You would turn our darkness into day. And Lord, if there is an individual in this place this morning that is sensing the convicting work of Your Spirit and calling them to the opportunity of grace, that they would change their former answer of no, and today they would say, yes, God. Yes, God. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, and help us to see you in all your glory.